You're listening to Making Waves, fresh ideas in freshwater science. Making Waves is a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss new ideas in freshwater science and why they matter to you. Making Waves is brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science, Arizona State University's School of Life Sciences, and the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fisheries Sciences. This is Eric Moody with the Making Waves podcast for the Society for Freshwater Science. This month, I'll be talking with Dr. Miguel Cañedo Arguez, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Barcelona. And among other things, his research has focused on the effects of river salinization on biotic communities and freshwater environments. So thanks for joining me, Miguel. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation, Eric. So my first question for you is, what exactly is river salinization or freshwater salinization, and what causes this process to happen? Basically, this is a good question because we, we use the term a lot, and basically we use it as the increase in dissolved ions, or in the U.S. we use the term total dissolved solids, but in the end it's just increase in, in dissolved salts, in rivers. This comes from a lot of different activities, human activities. I think that the most documented issue is land clearing in Australia. This is, I think, most of the papers, important papers, early papers come from Australia because they have saline groundwaters. The groundwater in many parts of Australia has salts dissolving it naturally. And so when they clear the, the trees, and they replace it by by crops and other kind of vegetation that does not retain water, then the groundwater came up with all those dissolved solids in it, and it caused the salinization of, of rivers. So that was one of the most important causes, the, the replace of trees and vegetation by crops and pasture in Australia. But then more and more cases have been documented, and many other different causes have arised. And for example, mining, coal mining, there in the US you have the Appalachians and many, many other regions, especially that region in Virginia, where you have a lot of coal mining. Mm -hmm. And because of coal mining, there is a lot of rocks that are being exposed to the weathering of the, of the rain and the, the climate, and, and that leads to salinization too. And then you have different types of mining, all of them usually lead to salinization. Then you have gas extraction, agriculture. In the northern regions, you have the use of salts for, for roads to prevent icing during winter. That's a huge cause of salinization in, in cold regions. So in the end, there is a lot of different factors. Also wastewater treatment plants, the wastewater is coming from the cities, they also have uh, high concentrations of water, many different industries like textile industries. And so in the end, there is a lot of causes sometimes interacting between them. And it's a widespread phenomenon because in some places you have a main cause might be agriculture, in other places might be road salts. And I just want to say that when we talk about salinization, we mo mostly refer to this increase in salts. But it's not only that. It's also important to acknowledge that we are changing the ionic composition of the water. 
because many of these salts are sodium chloride or other types of salts that might be not as abundant. So it's not only an increase in the amount of salts, but it's also that you might be changing the balance of, of ions in the water, and that's important for freshwater organisms. You mentioned a number of causes of salinization, and I was wondering if different causes could be depositing different ions or different salts in the water, and if you see different effects as a result of road salt versus potash mining or things like that? Yeah, that's a good question, and definitely. Uh, and to put a, a very simple example, mining itself, it depends what kind of mining you will get different kind of ions. For example, when we talk about coal mining, a lot of the ions that we go into the into waters are sulfate ions. But when you talk about potash mining, 90% of it would be sodium chloride. So that is very different. And the toxicity of these ions can be very different too. There is not much research about it, but there are more and more studies being published. And all of them are reporting that different salts have different toxicity. So yeah, totally different ions depending on, on the activity that you have. And it would be really good to characterize the ions that are more abundant for each kind of activity. That's something that would be really nice to, to have that information, but we still don't have that kind of information for, for a lot of human activities. So let's back up just a little bit. The defining characteristic of freshwater habitats is that they're low in salinity naturally in contrast to the ocean. Mm -hmm. So why is it that freshwater organisms have such a hard time dealing with these salts when other animals and, and plants can live in the ocean with these high salt concentrations? That's a very good question, a challenging question. It's <laughs> something that more and more people is looking at now is how the osmoregulation functions in, for example, freshwater insects. Like There is people like David Butchwalter in North Carolina. He's doing great studies about that. Ben Kefford just published a really nice paper about this. It can change a lot between different organisms, even within the same family or in the same order. Rivers have very low concentrations of, of salts naturally, if you go, for example, to headwater streams, right? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's like insects are living in, in uh, an environment that is not really perfect for them in that sense. And if you put a little bit more salts into water, actually you could be benefiting aquatic insects because they need to capture salts from the water to have a, a ion balance between their internal media, their blood, and the salts that are outside in the external media. But we are talking about a very small increase. But then when you go over that, that point, that let's say like optimal concentration of salts, everything starts to collapse. So basically it's, it's, it's something quite simple, right? We need to keep a balance. All organisms, we need to keep a balance, an osmotic balance because of the pressure between our internal fluids and the external fluids. So aquatic insects or any aquatic organism has to keep this balance. And then if there are more and more ions in the water, then you need to spend a lot of energy into osmoregulation to keep this balance, to maintain this balance. 
And this energy that you are spending on this is energy that you cannot use for other things, like, for example, growing or even moving. And at some point, it's not only that you are having an energy cost, but these mechanisms are like saturated and are not functioning anymore and they collapse. And the moment they collapse is when the organism dies. So I think that your question was also about more like the evolutionary perspective on this, right? Right. I don't know much about that, but for, for what I've read, it's, it's one of the things that is still barely known. Mm-hmm. Like why, from an evolutionary perspective, why is it so hard? for freshwater organisms to, to adapt to higher soil concentrations. Or, for example, there was a great paper. It was like, why there are no insects in the sea? Mm. I think it's the title of the paper or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's a very fun paper because it's very speculative because there is no much information about it, or, or at least there was no much information at the moment that the paper was published. And yeah, it looks like, for example, when I became interested on freshwater salinization, it was because I was studying coastal lagoons and estuaries and all the time I was looking at an environment that was very subjected to habitat modification and many different things but when I was running my analysis in the end I always found that salinity was the prime driver of biodiversity in my system and that was because salinity in the estuarine environments in the coastal lagoons is fluctuating a lot because you have the freshwater inputs from the rivers and the seawater And the balance between both of them creates unique salinity gradients. And when I read about it, all the authors were confirming that aquatic organisms usually are restricted to very narrow ranges of salinity because of the energy demand. You mentioned that in freshwater invertebrates, for example, when salinity increases above this threshold, it becomes toxic to them. So what kind of ecological Mm -hmm. impacts do you find in streams that have become highly salinized? The most obvious impact that has been acknowledged in a lot of different studies is a reduction in the diversity and a reduction in the abundance of most aquatic organisms. But then, this depends a lot of the kind of organisms that we're talking about. For example, amphibians are really sensitive to salt pollution to increase uh, salinity. In the aquatic insects, you might have, for example, plecopterans, uh, you know, mayflies. They, they can be very, very sensitive, whereas some crustaceans like gammarus or this kind of, of aquatic organisms can be very tolerant. So there is a wide range of, of tolerances to this uh, salinity, but what's the final impact on the ecosystem functioning? And that's what we are trying to answer now. More and more studies are looking into that, but it's not easy. For example, one thing that we've looked at, and it's very straightforward, very easy to look at, is uh, leaf decomposition. And what we find is that with increased salinity, leaf litter decomposition rate is uh, decreasing because many of the organisms that are responsible for this leaf litter decomposition are salt-sensitive. And then we have looked at sub-lethal effects. Like, for example, I recently did that study where I looked at the nets that were built by Hydrapsica, you know, by Trichoptera. They built these nets to capture food particles from the water. Right. And these nets, these nets are really symmetric. They are beautiful. When we increase salinity, 
it was like these organisms were dizzy or something. They were these these nets were not as symmetrical anymore. Mm. They were more and more disorganized. So that could have an impact on the ability of these organisms to capture food particles and their ability to feed. And that can have an impact on the organic matter processing of the stream. But there is not much information on that. I, I like one paper about natural saline streams. That's something also important to know, that there is a lot of uh, streams that might be saline. They might have a lot of salts. These salts come naturally because of the geology. Right. And those streams can be very important and they need to be preserved. So we need to distinguish between both. But in any case, they were comparing these uh, naturally saline streams with with uh, streams with low salinity, you know, like reference streams. Right. And in these saline streams, what you find is that there is not much riparian vegetation because the trees, when you have a lot of salts, they tend to die. They don't like these waters. Mm-hmm. So you have less uh, canopy cover, and when you have more light, you have more primary production, you have more algae, and then you you, you change from an heterotrophic ecosystem to an autotrophic ecosystem. Mm. So the impact on the ecosystem functioning can be very high, but we don't have much data on it. And, and you can also have great impact on the biochemical cycles. For example, there is a great paper of the salinization of wetlands in the U.S., I think it's Ellen Herbert published it last year, and they were looking at all the implications for nitrogen, phosphorus cycles, and they were amazing. I mean, they reported so many implications, and, and the, the impact on the on the biochemistry can be really high. As ecologists, we cannot work on everything, right? So we try to. We, we usually focus on something, and we we study that very deeply. But in the end. There is a connection among all different stressors, and of course, salinization is occurring at the same time as many other things. So we need to look for interactions between salinization and other kind of environmental stressors. You and your colleagues have demonstrated numerous impacts of salinization on freshwater ecosystems that are sort of similar to the effects that we see from things that we more think of traditionally as pollutants, various chemicals that are released into the water. So are there any regulations on salinity similar to how we regulate other pollutants? Yeah, this is something that we addressed in our science paper. And I, as, as far as I know, in the U.S., there are recommendations for and legally enforced standards for salinity. And there are recommendations for chloride. And the U.S. is doing probably much better than other parts of the world where there are no even recommendations for, for salinity. Mm-hmm. But I would say that in Australia, in the U.S., in Canada, in in Europe, at least salinity is taken into account and is regulated somehow. But then when, when you get into specific ions, uh, that's more difficult. Like, for example, chloride tends to be regulated in many in, in some places, but uh, you find no regulations for, I don't know, sulfate, potassium, and so on. And I think I saw a nice document proposing uh, recommendations for sulfate concentrations coming from the Canada administration. So there is more and more work in this direction. But, you know, it's difficult because since some time ago, I don't think that salinization was really 
acknowledged by water managers or policymakers as a real environmental issue. So now we, I think that it's more or less, it's being acknowledged and now everyone more or less agrees that this is an environmental issue that we need to take care of. And I would say that now the next step is to produce ecologically meaningful standards based on different things, not, not only toxicity tests, and also have standards for specific ions, not only for total dissolved solids or for total salinity, but standards for each, each of the major ions that we find in our rivers and streams. We need to move towards a global view on this issue. Still, much of the information we, we have comes from the US, Europe, Australia, but I know that there are huge salinity issues in Asia, in Africa, for example, in Bangladesh, there are millions of people that are being displaced from the coastal areas because the coastal fresh waters are being salinized mm. because of this, the seawater is advancing towards the land because of over-exploitation of the, of the groundwaters. And this is a huge issue, and it has also human health implications that we don't know about. So... I would say that we need to move towards a more global perspective, but we need to also to have a interdisciplinary perspective. It would be great if we could couple the economic impacts of salinization with the human health implications, with the ecological implications. Is there any way to reduce the impacts of salinization on waters or to prevent salts from entering fresh waters? It, of course, it depends a lot on the activity that you're talking about, right. but it's, it's, it's not easy. Right. It's not easy at all. It's, uh, for example, when we talk about mining, I'm quite interested in mining because we have huge potash mining issues here in, in Catalonia, and it's something that is quite important in Europe, but I know that it's also in the, in the U.S., in Canada, I, I think that they have big potash mines. And so what is happening here is that it's something that you can see very easily. Like when you're driving here in the road, suddenly you see a huge mountain, a wide mountain that is higher than the natural mountain surrounding it. Mm. And it's basically made out of sodium chloride. And that comes from the potash mines. Because these, these potash mines, they, they are interested in potassium, right? But sodium chloride is not that interesting because it's, it's not really... So that you're stockpiling there. And that's exposed to weathering again. And so what do you do with that? And they've been piling this sodium chloride for decades. So the first thing that they thought of was to build a collector. It was It's like a pipe surrounding this mountain. And it's collecting all the leachates and then transporting them for more than 30 kilometers into the sea. That was a lot of money invested into that. And the problem is that you have corrosion of the pipes with the, as the time goes by. So there is a lot of leaks. Mm. There are a lot of leaks. To the, uh, and at the same time, you are collecting just a part of these salts. Most of the salts are still entering groundwaters because it's very difficult technically to do this, right? Using pipes and collectors. When you talk about agriculture, for example, that might be easier because in the end, it's, it's a lot about how much water are you using. Uh, when you have salt in, in the agriculture,
agriculture fields many times is because you are using more water than the crops can absorb. And then there is like this excess water on the surface that is evaporated and the salts are left behind. Right. And then the salts build up in the soil and finally they go into the rivers, right? Mm-hmm. And if you were to irrigate in a more efficient way, you would probably save a lot of water. And I think that's something that has been done in the Colorado River. They had like an irrigation scheme to improve the efficiency of, of the irrigation systems. I want to ask you uh, something that's a little different, but you've done a lot of work on freshwater invertebrates. And in particular, you've recently published a few papers about coronamid midge larvae, which to many freshwater taxonomists are very frustrating because they all look the same and there's lots of them. (laughs) Uh, So I was wondering how you got interested in that group particularly and why you think that they're important. Well, yeah, I love this question. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, I have to acknowledge Narcisse Pratt and Maria Herrera de Valle. Maria Herrera de Valle was my supervisor doing my PhD, and Narcisse Pratt is her husband, and uh, he leads the Freshwater Ecology and Management Research Group at the University of Barcelona, is where I'm working now, and where I did my PhD too, and they love coronavirus. I don't know how Narcisse got interested in that, but he really loves and, and he's one of the top experts in the world. So all of their students had to learn Karanamid taxonomy. Uh. And it was like a pain in the ass in the beginning for everyone. Like, oh no, oh my God, because they are so small and you know, it, it takes a lot of time to, you have to cut their heads and then mount it in the microscope. And, and in, the, in the beginning, they all look the same to you. And well, right. but then, you begin to love them. It's like, it's amazing how beautiful they can be and how different they are. And it's not only that they are different uh, morphologically, but they can show a wide range of ecological traits, different food preferences, uh, even different life cycles, a different tolerance to environmental gradients. And the good thing is that they are everywhere. They are everywhere. Any kind of ecosystem any kind of conditions, you will find paranormals. If you build a new lake, if you restore a river, the first to, to arrive will probably be paranormals. So they are everywhere, and, and they can be really useful. I, I, I even developed an index of, of water quality just based on paranormals, and it was working really nice. And then we found that they were really... They were really cool. They were getting, we were getting a lot of information out of coronomics that was complementing the information that uh, we were given by the rest of invertebrates. So I, uh, I'm sure that it's, I mean, it takes a lot of time to learn how to identify these, these guys, but I think it's worth it. Thanks a lot for talking with us about river salinization. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Making Waves podcast, brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science. For more information on this speaker, the Making Waves podcast, or the Society in general, please visit us on the web at the Society for Freshwater Science webpage. 
tune in next time for another fresh idea in freshwater science.